are not going to be going through this. We're continuing in our uh, foundations series. We're not going to go through the whole book of Genesis, but uh, Travis Fentiman is going to be teaching through the book of Genesis, actually through the whole Bible. And they're meeting in this very room, probably, tomorrow evening at 7 o'clock. And you can talk to him afterwards uh, about that. They're going to be using multimedia uh, art, mixing a number of different things, kind of a creative walk through the Bible. But I want to read this. This is the word of Almighty God, and he calls us to tremble at his word, to stand in awe at his word, and to reverence it. And so let's do so as I read. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called light. So the evening and the morning were the first day. And God said, Let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it divide the waters from the waters. Thus God made the firmament and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament, and it was so. And God called the firmament heaven. So the evening and the morning were the second day. And then God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the gathering together of the waters he called seas, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let the earth bring forth grass, the herb that yields seed, and the fruit tree that yields fruit according to its kind, whose seed is in itself on the earth. And it was so. And the earth brought forth grass, the herb that yields seed according to its kind, and the tree that yields fruit, whose seed is in itself according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. So the evening and the morning were the third day. Then God said, Let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to divide the day from the night, and let them be for signs and seasons and for days and years. And let them be for lights in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. And God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also. God set them in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth and to rule over the day and over the night and to divide the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. So the evening and the morning were the fourth day. Then God said, Let the waters abound with an abundance of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the face of the firmament of the heaven. So God created great sea creatures and every living thing that moves, with which the waters abounded according to their kind, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters and the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. So the evening and the morning were the fifth day. Then God said, Let the earth bring forth the living creatures according to its kind, cattle and creeping thing and beasts of the earth, each according to its kind. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to its kind, cattle according to its kind, and everything that creeps on the earth according to its kind. And God saw, God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. 
have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, See, I have given you every herb that yields seed, which is on the face of the earth, and every tree whose fruit yields seed, to you it shall be for food. Also to every beast of the earth, to every bird of the air, and to everything that creeps on the earth in which there is life, I have given every green herb for food. And it was so. Then God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. Amen. Father God, we come before you. It is our desire to grow. You have said, sanctify them through your truth. Your word is truth. Father, it is our desire to be sanctified. And so I pray that you would quicken that word to our lives, enable me to faithfully preach, and enable each one of us to hear and to grow thereby. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. <coughs> As I mentioned... Um, this is part of our foundation series, and the foundation series are uh, sermons that deal with topics that really drive our vision, that are foundational to our church, and actually in many ways make us unique uh, in this city. And I would have to say that our literal view of Genesis 1 through 11 is one of the foundations that uh, so, so important. We're not going to deal with all of the chapters or all of the issues in those chapters. We're just going to spend two weeks on it. This week, we're going to look at uh, the, the issue of authority as it relates to creationism. And then next week, we're going to just go phrase by phrase through the uh, chapter and highlight six-day creationism and what difference that makes. But I, I do not think, I mean, let me just start by saying this. I don't think that it's possible to overstate how important the book of Genesis is. Uh, many scholars have pointed out that virtually every doctrine finds its root in the book of Genesis. Um, you can find even distinctively New Covenant doctrines like baptism and the Lord's table that the New Testament itself uh, connects to Genesis in very fascinating ways. That's an interesting subject all in its own. Certainly the doctrines of marriage and male-female uh, role relationships, justification by faith, predestination, eschatology, covenant theology, there's all kinds of doctrines that find their root in Genesis. And if you don't understand what Genesis said of, says about those subjects, you've got a limited understanding of those doctrines. It's very, very, uh, very key. But Henry Morris also delights in pointing out that it's not just a foundation for every doctrine, but it is a foundation for every discipline in life as well. Uh, for example, there's uh, disciplines like education that are informed by this book, science, economics. Uh, one of my favorite books on economics that Gary North has written was his commentary, I think it's Ken Cope's favorite too, Commentary on Genesis. Fascinating uh, uh, discussion of the economic principles that Genesis draws up. But there's other things, linguistics. Gordon Clark has written a book on a biblical philosophy of linguistics and pointing out the incredible problems with secular linguistic theories. If you don't have Genesis, there's a lot of problems with linguistics you're never going to be able to figure out. Uh, Genesis, I think, is very important for uh, showing the origin of the universe, order and complexity, life, marriage, sin, clothing. Yeah, why do we wear clothes? Some people just don't think about it, you know. But Genesis tells us why we do it. It even tells us what the definition of modesty in clothing is. And we won't get into that, but look at all the definitions of the tunic uh, that God gives to Adam and Eve. And uh, you look at every example in the Bible where God clothes people, it gives a definition of modesty there. 
Uh, it it, it uh, gives us insights into, uh, yeah, I mentioned language, government, culture, nations, and so many other things. And that's one of the reasons I think it is just tragic when missionaries go into the mission field, the first thing they start translating is the New Testament, and they don't get to Genesis till way later. Genesis is foundational. In fact, more and more uh, missions agencies are recognizing this, and they'll translate Genesis first. Because <laughs> if you don't know you know, the Creator and your relationship to Him, many of the things there, the Gospel doesn't make sense. In fact, I don't think the Gospel makes sense unless you understand the law, right? And so um, there's a lot of mission agencies that are beginning to uh, reverse that, change that around. But once you begin to understand the incredibly profound implications of the book of Genesis, you can understand why this book has come under more attack by Satan down through the last several thousand years than any other book of the Bible. Liberals are constantly ridiculing Genesis, saying, oh, the first 11 chapters are not really dealing with history. I try to deny the Mosaic authorship, despite the fact Jesus says that uh, Moses was the one who gave us Genesis and the one who gave us other portions in the Pentateuch that he quotes from. Uh, there's even evangelicals, by the way, and I can name you two or three Reformed people uh, that, as far as I'm concerned, are not Reformed in my books, but who deny the Mosaic authorship of the Pentateuch. It's really sad. And I think that this chapter is key in immediately establishing God's authority over absolutely every area of life. We live in a, a day and an age when uh, God's authority is being challenged in so many ways, and there are substitute authorities that people have put in place of God. And that was Adam's and Eve's first temptation, wasn't it? What's uh, the first thing that Satan says to them? Has God indeed said? I mean, he's questioning the authority of God's word, and you, you find the same thing uh, nowadays. And then he tempts Adam and Eve to determine for themselves what is truth and what is error, what is good and what is not good. They want to be their own authority. Men and women want to be their own authority. Now, many times they get themselves in trouble and they recognize they can't be their own authority, and so they look for experts every, uh, elsewhere. Maybe the government will be an authority in their lives, the final authority. If the government changes a law, and says, this is the way it is, they say, okay, well, that's the right thing to do then, even though maybe 20 years ago that was an abomination. And so for even many Christians, if the government says something, that's the final word. They don't even think to question there's an authority above that government. Other people see scientists as the final authority or psychologists or philosophers. Now, we're not going to get into all of those different alternative competitors this morning, uh, but I do want to look at at least eight uh, competitors. And the first one, I think the most obvious one, is atheism. Atheism says there is no God, and, you know, they're not subtle at all. They just say, forget any idea of an authority that's above us. There is no such thing as a God. So it's pretty blatant, and this book immediately takes on atheism because it says God created uh, everything. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I want you to notice something interesting about that. Did you notice as we were reading through there that God does not start his book by giving all kinds of arguments and defenses for his existence? That's the way we like to start frequently, is uh, uh, starting to prove that God exists. God doesn't do that because uh, the Bible assures us men don't need proof that God exists. The existence of God is written onto every human heart, and the universe itself screams forth God's existence. 
the order, the complexity shows that there is a creator out there, shows his power, shows his wisdom. The scripture says it's obvious there. And what men are doing is they are suppressing the knowledge of God. And so the scripture says it, uh, unbelief is not because of lack of information. He says that the unbelief that is out there is a willful unbelief. It's due to rebellion, uh, not uh, to uh, ignorance. And so it shows the depravity of man. And that's one of the reasons why the Bible's consistent message to unbelievers is not, oh, you poor folks, if only you had more information. No, it's repent. Consistently, the message is repent. And I think it's so cool that God shuts men up to one of two alternatives. Either man is the determiner of uh, truth and the source of meaning, or God is the determiner of truth and he is the source of meaning. There really are no other logical alternatives. It's either man's mind or it's God's mind. Now, if you start with man's mind, you're up a crick without a paddle because in order to develop any system of thought, you've got to start with axioms. You've got to start with universals. And let me tell you, let me assure you of something. Every universal, whether it's a universal, it's an axiom of mathematics or a science or any other universal that's out there, in order to make it, you either have to know someone who's omniscient or be omniscient yourself. Because if you say, it is always this way, you have to ask the question, well, have you exhaustively examined this universe? Can you really honestly say you've uncovered everything in this? Well, when they say there is no God. Say, are you sure? Uh, you know, this universe is several trillion light years across, and you've looked at every nook and cranny or unturned every leaf and you can come to the complete knowledge that no god exists i mean you're claiming to be omniscient to say there is no god you'd have to be god which is a self-defeating argument right and so uh, there's a real problem if you start with man's mind because um, man's mind is so finite it cannot comprehend everything now some people say well it's circular reasoning you're starting with the bible you're ending with the bible what we're doing is we're starting with god's mind and we're ending with god's mind and god's mind encompasses everything and so yes it's a circle it needs to be a circle it starts and finishes with god but the only alternative to circular reasoning is circular uh, reasoning with a vicious circle okay the vicious circle is you start with the puniness of man's mind, go back to man's mind, but claim that you're encompassing everything in this universe. It cannot be so. It cannot be so. And so I want to encourage you that um, atheism um, is uh, actually fairly easy. All you have to do is ask a few questions, and we can go over that. Actually, we dealt with that in the apologetics, um, in the apologetics section. But we tr prove the truth of Scripture by demonstrating the impossibility of the opposite. You say there's only two alternatives. You start with your mind. Now, how long have you been around? Uh, or you start with God's mind. Those are the only alternatives. In God's mind, if you start with the scriptures, it does explain. It gives you a comprehensive system. And so this verse starts with atheism. It says you've got to assume the existence of God to make sense of life. Second, this chapter confronts pantheism. They say, okay, guys, you're getting into the dust webs of history. That was only in vogue in the 18th and the 19th century. You know, who's a pantheist today? But I would uh, challenge you to uh, look around. Your next-door neighbor may be a pantheist. There are Eastern religions that are pantheistic. Transcendental meditation is pantheistic in its, uh, its orientation. Shirley MacLaine, <laughs> you know, is kind of a uh, New Agers. They're, they're pantheists. Pantheists say... 
that everything is God and God is everything. The historic definition of it was that um, the term God is an expression that explains the, the marvelous intricacies and complexities of life, the order and arrangements that's there that almost looks personal. And so they speak of everything being God and God being everything. But you'll find uh, pantheists all over the place. Now let me explain why this confronts uh, pantheism and says a, a resounding no. First, he declares himself in verse 1 to be prior to everything. And he declares himself to be the creator of everything, and therefore he is independent of everything. Does that make sense? He, if he's prior to everything, and he's the creator of everything, that means he is independent of everything. And one of the things that we strongly believe in this church is in the creator-creature distinction. Now, there's profound implications of that we just do not have time to get into. But um, in apologetics, you can read the implications of that in Cornelius Van Til's writings. And there's uh, many other implications of that, but, but it affects ethics. Uh, God alone can determine ethics. We can't, again, come up with universals. It affects governments. Just check out in history every pantheist, every country that was dominated by a pantheistic religion, it was always tyrannical and centralized in its orientation. And uh, this very clearly says not only that in any beginning to have been begun, God was already there, but he says that he created all things out of nothing. The Hebrew word bara means to create out of nothing. Ex nihilo, out of nothing. Hebrews 11 says, By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. Okay, this verse also confronts polytheism. Poly means many. Theos means God, so it's the belief in many gods. And you might think, again, why in the world are we dredging up these old things? Who believes in polytheism today? Well, most Eastern countries have polytheists, but even in our own country, did you know that the largest uh, um, uh, uh, false religion in, uh, in America is a polytheistic one, Mormonism? Uh, many people would say, wait a minute, they're polytheists? Well, absolutely, yes, they are. Because Mormons believe that Elohim was a god that had uh, gone to a, a, a far higher degree than Jesus. Actually, there's billions of gods, and you can eventually become a god and get to the place where Elohim is now. Of course, he'll be way advanced of you, but they believe in billions and billions of gods. They try to frame it in a way that sounds more evangelical, but it, it is not. It's a polytheistic view. Uh, well, in this uh, passage, Moses uses the singular article to describe God. There is the God. There is only one God. But the same phrase confronts Unitarianism. Unitarianism denies that there are three persons in one God. Now, at the very time the passage affirms God's unity, that there's only one God, it uses a plural form, Elohim. Anytime you see an im on the end of a Hebrew word, you know it's plural. Okay, The im is the plural form. And so here is a plural form of that. There is the singular that indicates it's one being, and yet there's somehow some plurality. And we have hints of distinctions in the Godhead already in verse 2. It says the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the, the waters. And then take a look down there at verse 26. <coughs> it says, Then God said, 
and it's again the 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 the, the um, singular article then god said let us notice the plural there this is father son and holy spirit speaking with each other uh covenanting with each other it says let us make man in our image according to our likeness let them have dominion over the fish of the sea etc but god is talking you know with within the godhead the persons are talking to each other so there's a plurality of persons in verse 26 and yet verse 27 says it's only one god so god created man in his own image in the image of god he created him male and female he created them so god is one being one essence one god and yet there's a plurality and personality that works together talks together plans together only people can can work together speak together plan together that's personality so don't let anybody tell you that the doctrine of the trinity can, is only in the new testament and even there it's only hinted at that the doctrine of the trinity did not develop until the third century if you want proof of that i've got a three volume set written by a jewish scholar by the name of david cooper who's done a masterful job of showing how the old testament had a triune god many of the older ancient rabbis uh, uh, talk about uh, this triune God, one God, but uh, there being uh, there being personalities uh, within this this Godhead. Okay, so we've gone through pantheism, polytheism, uh, Unitarianism, and I should just mention to you when when people you know think about you know the development of, of of revelation there is a development over time where god reveals more and more of himself but every doctrine in the new testament is found in the old uh, and there is one rule of hermeneutics that's put in a kind of a poem and maybe some of you learned this uh, the the new is in the old concealed the old is in the new revealed okay so it's clearer the further along you get but it was always there and these are hints of the trinity already in chapter one of genesis now this verse also confronts materialism and this is so much a part of modern atheistic science uh, where they say hey it's just illegitimate to bring anything spiritual into the equation all we know that exists is material and so as scientists it's illegitimate to bring any spiritual issues in there and uh, so they say matter is the only uh, issue that matters b.f skinner applied that to psychology he says, you know, the will, the emotions, uh, what people think of as the soul side of it, it's all matter. It can all be explained in terms of physical impulses. Um, Karl Marx applied this to economics and to history and to political theory. Spencer applied it to every subject in the university, every discipline through the evolutionary uh, model. But it's clearly wrong because here it says matter has a beginning they say matter is eternal it's always been around it says in the beginning shows that there is a there, there's a beginning for the space mass time continuum which all was created on day one and then the word created i've already mentioned is bara which means to make out of nothing let me give you a couple of additional scriptures to show that romans 4 17 god calls those things which do not exist as though they did Hebrews 11:3 The worlds were framed by the word of God so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. So he's saying material did not come from material. God's word made it out of nothing. 
Uh, the verse also confronts the notion of ethical dualism. Now, ethical dualism is the belief that evil and good have always coexisted side by side, and they never had a beginning. And uh, Zoroastrianism in the ancient world was one of the big proponents of that. <coughs> Even though they were monotheistic, they said that evil was always in existence. And you, again, you might say, is that something that's really infecting the modern church? And I would say, yes, it is. Evangelicals have been adopting ethical dualism as their explanation to the problem of evil. They say, well, how in the world could a good God ever create something that he knows is going to be able to fall? How could God, who has foreknowledge, even bother creating the world if it's going to introduce uh, evil into his universe? They just really struggle with that. They say somehow that implicates God with evil himself. And so many of these people deny the deny the sovereignty of God and for them it's a better explanation to say evil has always been around in fact one one guy um, well there's one of the more noxious forms says that that the devil was not created the devil has always existed and he's always been evil and so there's this this and God you know is doing everything he can to counteract that there's another um, form of it I won't tell you the, the name of the guy. You can maybe ask me afterwards, and I'll t uh, show you where you can find it in his book. Very famous evangelical, and actually he's written a lot of good stuff, but he says in this book that God had within himself the potential for both good and evil from all of eternity, and he passed that potential onto his creation, and that's why the creation was able to fall, because the potential was within God himself. Now, it's not orthodox. It's not biblical. It's not the good way to uh, answer, answer that problem. And the people who say that, that we just don't know where Satan came from, that he has always been in a existence as far as the Bible is concerned, but maybe he was created, that, that's not, not a good explanation. First of all, verse 31 says, Then God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good, very good everything that he had made now some dualists try to wiggle out of that dilemma by saying well he's only talking about what was made in that seven days i don't see that exclusion seems like he's just given a whole chapter and he says here's all the things i've made in this chapter now everything he made was good and uh, uh i think it's pretty clear that uh satan was created uh but he was created upright ezekiel 28 twice says satan was created and he was created perfect. It says, you were perfect in your ways from the day you were created till iniquity was found in you, Ezekiel 28, 15. And by the way, that's a passage that says that Satan um, uh, was still sinless. He was still good when God created the Garden of Eden. He was walking back and forth in the Garden of, uh, of Eden. Genesis 2, verse 1 says, thus, this, this is the way, thus the heavens and the earth and all the hosts of them were finished. And so anything that was in the heavens, anything that was in the earth, it was finished, and that's within the purview of what he declared to be very good. Now, again, we've got a hint of this all the way back in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. God created the heavens and the earth. What's the order? Heavens are created first, then the earth is created. Now, which heavens is he talking about? Because it's plural. It's not the atmospheric heavens. That's the first heavens that, the, you know, the birds fly in the heavens. That's created on day two, if you look at verse six and following. But there are two other 
heavens that are created. The second heaven is space. Space is not nothing. Space is something. Um, before, all there was was God, but space was created into which the world and the stars and everything else are later placed. So that's the second heaven that is created. And then the third heaven is the abode of God and of his angels. It's his throne room. And so that's the reason I believe that the angels were created on day one. Uh, the third heaven, I believe, because it's a plural here. There's two heavens. There's only three heavens altogether. We know one's already ruled out. So the third heaven is created on day one right away. Let me read you a couple of scriptures that confirm this. Job 38, 4 through 7. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? He's talking to Job here. Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? To what were its foundations fastened? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Now that verse indicates that at the first step of earth's creation, and he likens it to laying a foundation. Later on, he's going to be building on top of that and perfecting this earth. But when that foundation is laid, all of the angels sang for joy, which implies that they were uh, that they were uh, uh, still uh, that they were still um, perfect; that they had not fallen. Psalm 104, four through five: Who makes his angels spirits, his ministers flames of fire? You who have laid the foundations of the earth, so that it should not be moved forever. So angels made first, then the foundations laid. So anyway, it gives us a hint, at least, that um, ethical dualism um, is just not is just not a biblical option. And uh, the gap theory uh, seeks to um, also destroy ethical dualism, but I don't think they're as effective because they believe that um, the angels were created somewhere between verses 1 and 2, and there was a big gap. We'll deal with that next week. But in any case, let's go on to point G. This chapter confronts humanism. Humanism is the belief that man is the measure of all truth and that nothing is true unless it can be demonstrated by reason to be true. Well, this chapter indicates that God existed and that truth existed before man existed. Because five days before man is made, he's speaking truth and he is investing this universe with meaning, which indicates it's not dependent upon us at all. I think it's just the height of folly to think that for something to be true, it has to be filtered through our mind that we need to be the judge of it. <coughs> um, some people and some forms of humanism say there is no truth, and we need to ask them, well, is that a true statement, that there is no truth? Um, but a lot of times people are just say, well, you know, that's good for you, that's true for you, this is true for me. And... Uh, I think we have to say no. God is the one who invests truth. It's objective. It's not subjective. It's not just truth for me. Truth existed before there was a me, before there was any man, and that means it's objective. There's a standard by which we can be judged. And again, you can look at um, the, the, the whole problems we, we looked at before. If man's mind is the measure of truth, you've got troubles. Now, we could point out how this confronts feminism, chauvinism, many other issues i got to stop somewhere so i'm going to stop with evolution and just be very brief because we're going to touch on that a uh, little bit more next week this chapter i think is so clear 
that things did not develop gradually over billions of years from the slime into something, you know, much more complex. Uh, even a child, I think, can read that. Actually, it's the experts who have a hard time reading it. It's children who can read this and understand it. And God, I think, says, don't steal the bread, you know, from the children, right? And I think many times experts are doing exactly that. They're stealing the bread from the children because they're making it so complex, so hard to understand. You have to have a PhD to understand the Bible. No, God wants us to live by every word of, that proceeds from the mouth of God. How can you unless you can understand it? And uh, I don't know. I, I don't know if I'm going to even get into this. But let me point out, some people say, well, the complexities of evolution weren't around. Uh, there were evolutionary thoughts uh, even in the time that Moses wrote, and we can go through some of the different theories. One of them was uh, that it started as a giant egg, and they say we don't know where the egg came from, but the egg produced life, and there was gradual uh, development over time. And I find it interesting that the Big Bang Theory is sometimes called the cosmic egg theory, and so you've got an ancient egg theory that's been re revitalized and given a little bit more complexity. But I, to me, it takes far more faith to believe in evolution than it does to believe what God has to say in the Scripture. Edwin Conklin has said that the probability, mathematical probability of life originating by chance is like the probability of an unabridged dictionary resulting from an explosion in a print shop. In other words, it's, it's just not there. <laughs> okay, <laughs> It's just incredible. When you look at the develop, uh, the, the, the complexity at the cellular level, even the simplest cells, just a, a marvelous thing. So anyway, this verse, verse 1 even, sets the tone for the whole Bible by confronting unbelief, any types of rationalization, attempts to get out from under God's authority. But then and here's what we're going to uh, try to quickly finish off on. It brings hope and it inspires trust in three areas. Trust in God's authority, trust in God's control, and trust in God's presence. And I think that first one is something that every human heart struggles with until they have been regenerated, captured by God's grace. They tend to struggle with trusting uh, God's uh, authority. I'm going to look at two sides of God's authority that we tend to struggle with. The first is the authority of God's commandments. In this chapter, immediately, God starts giving commandments to every aspect of his creation, to be fruitful, to appear, to do this or that. He gives commandments to every aspect of his creation to show his authority over absolutely every area of creation. And so authority implies, first of all, the right to rule or to give commandments, and you'll see commandments on every day of the week, and he ends with giving commandments to Adam and Eve. Now, whether Adam and Eve thought these commandments are you know, arbitrary or foolish or whatever, they lack the trust in his authority. And there may be some commandment. It might be a tiny commandment, like the Adam and Eve's commandment. Is that really such an important thing that I can't eat from one tree? It might be a tiny commandment that you are struggling with, and maybe you're justifying your disobedience by saying, but Dad, everybody does it. What's your authority when you say that? It's not God. Your authority is peer pressure, right? Peer pressure has suddenly come to such a profound authority that you're governed by that. Or maybe your, uh, your disobedience is justified by appealing to your comfort. It's just too hard. And so your comfort becomes an idol. Or maybe you appeal to pragmatism. I've tried it and it doesn't work. Or maybe you've appealed to government authority. 
well, the government says it's okay. Why can't I do this? If the Bible, you know, says it's wrong and the government says it's right, you know, people will appeal to that as an authority. Or maybe it's just your own mind is an authority. You say, well, I don't understand it yet. Well, there's lots of commandments we give to our children. We try over time to help them understand, but they need to learn to obey before they understand. The same is true of us. There are commandments in the Scripture that I don't understand. I obey it because the Scripture tells me to, but I don't understand why the Lord has called us to do that. Uh, To this day, I still don't understand why fasting works. But I know it does work. I've seen it in counseling, you know, where they've been up against a brick wall and they cannot go any further. And we have them start fasting and they break through that. It doesn't make any rational sense to me. But if God says it works, I know it's going to work, right? And so I think uh, you're setting up your mind as being the highest authority, as being a god, as an idol, if you say, I'm not going to obey it until I understand the rationale for why God is commanding me to do this. And really, it's a, it's a, it's a rebellion It's an attack. Every disobedience like that is an attack against God as creator. He's the potter. We are the clay. Romans 9 says it's not the place of the clay to say to the potter, why are you doing this? You do it. If he tells you to do it, you do it, right? And uh, so we need to be in a a position uh, of saying, Lord, whatever your commands are, I'm willing to follow Now, the second side of authority requires faith as well, and this is the aspect that Webster's Dictionary defines as uh, expertise, uh, weight, testimony, credibility. You you, you say, he's an authority on this subject, or who are you? Are you an authority on this subject? No, that's the kind. In this sense, God is an authority on absolutely everything because he created everything, right? Uh, He made all of life, and yet many Christians, unfortunately, have less confidence in what the Bible has to say about the problems they are facing than what non-Christians say about those same problems. In other words, they're saying the non-Christian is more of an expert than the Bible is, than God is, because this is God's uh, word. See, if God is the creator of all things, and if God is the expert on all things, then new is not better. Right? New is not better. And yet how few Christians study God's word as being authoritative on anything other than their own salvation or maybe their personal sanctification. The Bible speaks to all of life and we need to have a trust in that. And uh, many times will people will put more trust in secular biologists or geologists than they do in Genesis 1 through 11 and its statements about origins and early history. That's where their authority lies. And so the six-day creation debate, is, I, I really think, is a trust issue of who is the expert, the geologist or God? Who is the expert? Now, it goes way beyond just simple creationism. I think creationism, um, a trust in that gives us a confidence in everything that the Scripture says. For example, I, I think the slander that uh, uh, brought against Galileo needs to be set to rest. A lot of people say, the 68 creationists, oh, you're just like the church that was opposed to Galileo and his scientific and, uh, you know, advancements, and we ought not to be obstructionists. The, the scriptures uh, are not sophisticated enough to instruct life. You know, what the situation was in the time of Galileo was exactly the opposite. The church of that day had become so corrupt, they had adopted stock, lock, and barrel the philosophy of Aristotle, who was a Greek pagan homosexual pagan well that's irrelevant retract that statement but anyway (laughs) he was uh, it was a pagan 
and his, his writings infiltrated into the church and they adopted his cosmology and that became the orthodoxy of the day. And Galileo came along and he says, that's not what the scriptures say. And it's definitely not what observation shows. And so Galileo was actually using the scripture to oppose the church. And it's more like what's happening today where the church is compromised by adopting the, um, uh, the secular views of the age of the universe and things like that. And it's creationists who are like Galileo and say, look, our scientific uh, experiments show what you're saying is wrong, but certainly the scripture says what you're saying is wrong. So let's, let's put that to rest, that, um, uh, that slander, I think, against Galileo. He was the one who was upholding the authority of scripture, whereas the church was appealing to the authority of Aristotle. Now there's many other examples that could be given i forget the name of the uh, the guy i just jotted it down here uh, a little bit earlier uh, today uh, anybody remember the name of the guy that mapped out all of the sea currents in the ocean but anyway the reason he did that is he read in the bible that there are streams in the seas and so he says if there are streams in the seas that could really help in terms of speeding up our shipping so he started mapping it out and sure enough Here's all these ocean currents, and ever since then, uh, they've been able to go so much more quickly. I watched a, uh, a documentary on the exploration of oil, and when they were in Egypt, they were saying it was so discouraging because they dug well after well after well, and they were almost ready to give up when they struck it big. Well, they completely left out the reason why that guy persevered. The reason he persevered is that he was convinced from the scriptures that there must be oil there because it talks in the scripture about the pitch it talks about the bitumen it talks about things that would be connected with oil and when he he suggested that and they went over there were a lot of people scoffed at him a lot of the geologists and he dug and he dug drilled wells i should say and finally they were going to pull his funding they said let me try one more time and then they struck it big but you see, if you start with the axioms of Scripture or any other statements that the Bible says about life and you, you take them as absolutes, they will not let you down. And many discoveries have been made in the past because people were willing to bank on God's expertise, his authority. <clears throat> now, a second thing that the doctrine of creation can inspire trust in is God's ongoing control. If God created all things, he controls all things. And there are many scriptures that tie the two together. He knows how to handle this world so that it will work together for our good. Colossians says, all things have been created by him and for him. There is the creation. And in him, all things hold together. There is the control. If God created everything, surely he can control everything. Hebrews 1.3 ties the two as well. Speaks of the son whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds. Here's the creation. Here's the next part. And upholding all things by the word of his power. Acts 17, verses 26 through 28 say that God created all humans from one blood. And then it goes on and says, and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. It says, for in him we live and move and have our being. So he's saying God created man. Well, that means he controls man. We couldn't even breathe. The very breath that people use to curse God is a breath God gave them in the first place. It's like a child sitting in a father's lap who has dressed this child, fed this child, given everything to this child, and the child is slapping the father. Okay? 
God says, you couldn't even slap me if it wasn't for the fact that I strengthened you and if it wasn't for the fact that I provided for you. Now, this is why 1 Corinthians 10, 13 can promise that there is no temptation that has overtaken you except such as is common to man. And God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but will with the temptation make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. How can he guarantee that? He's saying there isn't any circumstance that will ever come into your life. There aren't any humans that will ever come into your life that will be such a trial that you have to sin. There won't be ever any ethical dilemmas where the choice is I'll sin or I'll sin. God will always guarantee your circumstances will be such that you have a choice to do the right thing. If he didn't have control, you wouldn't be able to have that trust. In, in, in God in that circumstance. And so it, it, it inspires a trust in his control. And then lastly, the doctrine of creation inspires a trust in God's presence. And his presence is all through these chapters. The spirit is hovering over the waters. He's not a deist, you know, who makes something, winds up the clock, disappears. No, all the way through this narrative, he is with his creation. He, he makes a garden for Adam and Eve. He wants to fellowship with adam and eve and even after the fall when the spirit of god does leave adam and eve they lose the spirit because they have forsaken god god still pursues after adam and eve he does not forsake them and so his presence is such an important part of uh, this lordship and this authority as well and uh, even though we may be frustrated god is not frustrated you look at the last book of the bible and you'll see the images of genesis uh, written in such a way that you realize it's not Satan who has the last word. God's purposes in creation will be fulfilled through his redemption, and there will be a new heavens and a new earth in which dwells righteousness. And so what I want to do is I just want to encourage you, trust God, trust his authority, and uh, uh, may uh, this sermon stir you up to appreciate and love the implications of creationism. Father, <laughs> Father God, we thank you, we bless you that you are the creator God, that you continue to control and uphold all things by the word of your power, that we live and move and have our being in you. And Father, forgive us for those times where we have substituted other authorities than you, when we have made flagrant attacks against the doctrine of creation, when we have failed to act as preachers should, we have uh, been clay but we have talked back to the potter forgive damage that was done by satan far as the curse is found you are going to restore this earth we look forward to that day father may we be a part of that in jesus name amen Mm-hmm. <clears throat>